Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast. And for our 101st episode, I'm excited to have with us writer and author Catherine J. Atwood. And we're going to be discussing her book, Codename Pauline, Memoirs of a World War II Special Agent. So, Catherine, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. So uh, just to catch everybody up, Catherine and I have been trying to get together since, I think, Thanksgiving of last year. And at the time, we were going to discuss your other book, Women Heroes of World War II, 26 Stories of Espionage, Sabotage, Resistance, and Rescue. But now that even though it's taken us so long to get together, we just thought we'd talk about your, your, your newer book. And so, again, I just really do appreciate your time. Thank so, you. Yeah, so so if I remember correctly, the book that we're going to discuss tonight, Pauline, of course her real name is Pearl, she is um, featured in your other book. She's one of those 26 stories. Is that correct? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, it's codename Pauline. Codename, that's right. So, so her codename was Pauline, but her real name was Pearl. Pearl Witherington. Okay. Mm-hmm. So could you uh, maybe just introduce us to her a little bit, and then we'll just kind of jump into her story? Because her, 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 even her story, her background, every, and even about how the book came about is just, is just really fascinating to me. Uh, sure. Pearl Witherington was one of the agents of the British wartime organization, the Special Operations Executive. And she, she was sent by the SOE into Nazi-occupied France. Mm-hmm. as a courier, and she worked uh, for the Stationer Network, headed by her former schoolmate, uh, Marie Southgate. She worked as a courier for nine months, um, and then she had a major switch in roles, which is what ma- has made her famous in the annals of SOE history. Now, that's amazing. See, that's what I love about World War II. You can just keep reading about it, and there are so many new things that you're going to find out. Before I picked mm-hmm. up your book, I did not know of the the British Special Operations Executive called the SOE. I mean, I knew they did things behind the lines and all this stuff, but again, it's just more of the the things that makes it such a it's such an incredible story. It's a very interesting organization. It was just for the war. It was disbanded after the war. Uh, the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, was a resistance organization, a British resistance organization that developed resistance from within a German-occupied country during World War II. Uh, and so she, uh, I think it was maybe a total of, what, 39 women joined the SOE before the war and really made a, a, a contribution to trying to give the, the Nazi Germans just as much trouble as they could in the sure. different-occupied well, countries. Uh-huh. 39 women were sent into France with the SOE. Okay. Now, Out of the 400-plus agents that were sent into France. Right. Okay. So um, what I really like about this book is that um, – and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the editor of this book about Pearl, and you really get a sense of who she is because it sounds like she's just sitting there telling you her story of her life. And through that, you get a really good sense of her attitude towards – a, a lot of the things that happened in her life and in a sense of the person herself. And she's very almost unemotional, detached, but she still makes it a very charming story as she just goes along and says, and this and this and this, but they're incredible events that she's talking about. I mean, she's talking about resisting the, uh, the Nazi, the Nazi war machine, but she just talks about it. Like she's almost going shopping for groceries or something like that. Well, she was, a very, yes, she was a very unemotional person. Uh, this, 
went back to her childhood when she had to take over responsibilities for the family because her father was an alcoholic, her mother couldn't quite cope with the situation, and so Pearl grew up with responsibilities far beyond her years, and she had to kind of keep her emotions in check in order to survive, in order to keep doing what she was doing, keep all those responsibilities in check. So she was just talking. The memoir is actually a transcript of conversations that she had with uh, Monsieur LaRoque during 1994-1995. So that's why it sounds like she's talking. She was. Okay. <laughs> she, did, she didn't write down the memoir. She was interviewed. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, um, mm-hmm. she was British but living in France. Is, is that correct? Correct. She was a British citizen her whole life, but she grew up in Paris. Oh, okay. So so I guess the advantage which, which really the SOE was looking for besides courage and someone who would not flinch because uh, she seemed very un- unflinchable. Uh, she had the ability to speak um, perfect French, I guess Parisian French, as well as English, and they just really needed that skill at the time. They did. They needed someone with an accent that mm. was could be seen as authentic. They were looking for people to pose as natives of a particular country, and obviously she had that accent down. Because people living in a certain country um, can tell if someone's a stranger or not from that area. The Germans couldn't tell because right. they, they couldn't distinguish between accents, but French people could. And so it was very important to get people who could pose as natives of a particular country. And Pearl definitely passed that test, flying colors. Yeah. Okay, let's let's just jump into her life. So she had a very hard yeah. life. Her father wasn't around that very much. And like you said, she had to grow up very young and take a certain amount of responsibility for her mother and her two younger sisters. Um, and now, three younger Three younger sisters? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, I apologize. So three younger sisters. So, And then at one point, she gets a job in the British Embassy in France. She's a typist. Um, it's probably not the most glorious job in the world, but she's got a steady paycheck. She's able to, you know, life is a little bit better for her family because of her hard work. And then the war comes along. France is uh, knocked out of the war pretty pretty early in the war. And then the Germans announce after they take half of France that they're going to, or at least I guess it was maybe it was rumors that the Germans were going to start arresting British citizens in France. Exactly. Yes. And this is, they had to get out of there. So they now, did try, they tried to leave during the Battle of France that went straight west, but they got stuck in Normandy and had no way of um, getting out. So they had to come back to Paris and then the Germans were starting to round up British citizens, wow. and so they had to leave. Okay, but but even that, not that we not that we have time for all the details, but even that was an amazing uh, chapter of her life. They had to go through what Spain and then Portugal, and then eventually get there. But even that was an incredible journey. Uh, I enjoyed yeah, reading was, that in the book. It was very difficult. You don't really get the sense of how difficult it was from her memoir because she's so unemotional, but. It was a seven-month journey, uh, much of it on foot and wow. during a very cold winter. So she really downplays the difficulty of that particular journey. But, yeah, it took him seven months, yeah, that's and then a- she went from Paris to uh, London. 
months. Yeah, so she gets to London in July of 1941, and of course they have to do something with their lives, and, and she's got to take care of her mother. So Pearl and her sisters become WAFs, W-A-A-Fs. They're going to join the cause, and they're going to make money. I, I imagine they put their mother up in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an apartment somewhere in London or, or somewhere re- reasonably safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what we did not really touch on, and I apologize for this, so before she leaves, she's growing up a little bit, and she meets a man that they um, they had a very strange, if you want to call it a courtship. His name is Henri. They like each other very much, but his family, who is much um, what more affluent, um, is not exactly excited about him dating this kind of this kind of woman, or at least a woman in her situation. And then she, when she has to leave, they're not going to see each other for years once she uh, once she makes it to London. Yeah, that's right. They were separated for years. That's right. And most people would, I guess, forget each other, but maybe there was just something about their bond or their union or whatever, but they certainly did not forget each other, which just really adds it really adds to the story. Yeah, it's a, it's a great love story. It really is. I like the part where they couldn't, they weren't allowed to go to each other's house, so they had to meet on the streets of Paris and hang out on a park bench and just, I guess, just talk and spend time together. That's right. They just like being with each other, and um, they did whatever they could to be together. Yeah. Now, I thought it was interesting when she gets to London. She's going to um, she's going to do something for the cause, and and again, you really get the sense about her. She just seemed to be born a, a person with very strong uh, set in her ways, and she just did not like, uh, I guess, people either being bullies or in this case nations being bullies and she just really had this sense of um, unfairness and mistreatment and and gosh darn it she was going to do something about it so when she gets to london she she seems to find want to find a way to really make a difference in the war i just thought that was very courageous of her yeah she had a real strong sense of justice real Mm -hmm. acute sense of justice and it just was not fair that the germans would come in and say we're here this is our country now put those huge Nazi um, banners everywhere. She just couldn't stand that. And so she was in London pushing papers, as she said, but for two years she kept thinking about those Nazi banners, the occupation, the unfairness of it. And she also remembered that while they were on their way out of France, Mm -hmm. they were being helped by groups of people Well, really not groups of people, individuals, but she thought they might be networking. And so she kept thinking, I'd really like to push the Germans out instead of pushing papers here in London. And she thought, maybe there's some resistance organization I can join to do that in a more active way. And so that's why she she looked, looked up the SOE, which wasn't something people usually did. Usually the SOE went looking for you, but she went looking for the <laughs> SOE. Shows how determined she was. Yeah, I just think it was very indicative of, of her attitude. So mm-hmm. in some ways, if I can remember from, from my reading, in some ways she was almost um, – she was looking for, for either for them or someone like them. And then mm-hmm. she is brought on board, and they really put her through her paces. They don't just accept her because of her language skills. She really no, has no. to train hard and earn it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Wow. Yeah. It was very rigorous. They wanted to weed out people they didn't think would be able to make it. But um, they said they her uh, SOE files are full of praise about her mm-hmm. uh, character. She had leadership abilities. They said she was the best shot they had, male or female, up until that time, which was 1943. Wow. So they must have had a lot of people coming through there because the SOE was established in um, 1940. So... Yeah, they were very complimentary of her, her SOE instructors. 
Yeah, I just I just think it's amazing that she was able to wow them, and 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 you got to know that the the um, I don't know what you want to call it, the prejudice uh, prejudices against women were certainly. Um, alive and well in 1943, but she certainly had the skills to impress them. And they were saying, well, we need every, we need every pair of hands we can get. So, you know, welcome aboard, I guess. Yeah, I think, I think the um, misogyny was more in the upper echelons, not with the instructors per se. Instructors, from what I can gather from what people were writing in her um, report, so to speak, Mm -hmm. they realized that they needed everyone, uh, male or female, especially females, because females were not as much in demand for work in German munitions factories, and so they could be out and about in occupied countries much more than their male counterparts. So women were very necessary uh, in the ranks of the SOE. And I don't, I don't think there was too much misogyny in as far as the uh, instructors went. They just, they just looked for talent, qualities they were looking for, courage and ability and kind of overlooked gender i believe for the most part well i guess in that situation you pretty much have to it kind of forces you to um deal with what you have and i guess see life in a in a very different way so yeah i think it and not that i'm an expert at at this in any way shape or form but in some ways that thing i think helped their the movement of women being treated as equals because they needed everybody they can get it so but but she's able to back that up with with uh, with her own talents and her and her Mm -hmm. and her leadership skills as we'll soon see so for everything we've just said as far as I can remember, she is going to be sent over to France, and her her job is to be a courier, if I'm correct, for the stationer network. Exactly. Okay. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Now, this this is kind of gruesome, but obviously she had to have a cover when she was over there. She couldn't just say, oh, hey, I'm Pearl. Um, so she, she, I guess she had to take the identity of someone that died or disappeared, and she had to have a cover story while she was over there. Yeah, she was pretending to be someone called Marie Vargas, mm-hmm. and she was posing as a cosmetics representative as she traveled uh, on her long train trips across uh, central France. 
So, so she can speak the language. She has her cover, and her cover is obviously going to require her to travel, which again is just is part and parcel of what she's doing. But I just thought it was so ironic that when you see pictures of her, she doesn't have any makeup on. It's like um, you forgot that little part. But, but other than that, she she seemed to do a really good job of making herself as, as passing herself off as this person. Yeah, I think she's wearing lipstick in the false uh, railway pass, actually. So right. It's a bit made up. Because I just remember one one passage in there. I get I don't know if it was a German officer or whatever. She's on a train and someone goes, what do you do? And she tells him and she goes, oh, yeah. but you're not wearing any makeup. And the train had been stopped several times during the night. And she said, well, I'm not going to wear makeup after I've been through this kind of a <laughs> horrible night. So she was hoping he would just leave it there. And he did. Yes. That's as close as she came to blowing her cover. Right. A very realistic uh, excuse. So, um. So the organ, the network that she belongs to, as well as other networks uh, throughout occupied France, basically their job is to, I guess, to harass the the Germans, um, blow up fuel, maybe mess with the, the railroad tracks, you know, any kind of transportation. And as, as we're getting closer to D-Day, because the um, the, her net particular network was pretty was pretty effective at what they were doing. The, the Germans were zeroing in on on them. So as we get closer to D Day, their job, along with every other network, so I believe um, if I'm getting this right, was to be able to stop however they had however they could the Germans from rushing to the coast uh, to impede the Allies as they're trying to land. Which leads to the Battle of is that Les, Les Souches? Am I saying that right? The Battle of Les Souches, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, Pearl and her group were told uh, after D-Day to fell trees and put trees all over the roads. Mm-hmm. And all the all the uh, groups in the area were told that, but theirs was the only one to obey the command, and so the Germans knew that someone was in their area. <laughs> right. So they sent a uh, snooper plane in. And they sent the Germans in, and so thousands of Germans came against this tiny, at the time, group of resistors, and they all had to scatter. Wow, that's amazing. So I think it was like 2,000 Germans versus 20 Maquis, and basically they just have to to get out of there. And even though they weren't all... Um, annihilated, which was amazing in its own self. The the yeah. or, the, na- the network is sh- um, shaken up enough, and they lose practically everything that they had. The Germans were able to grab, oh, I guess, a lot of their material and supplies and everything that made them uh, a, a, an effective resistance network. Yes, but they didn't take one thing, and that was due to Pearl's quick thinking, which mm-hmm. this is an incredible moment in Pearl's life, and the reason that they were able to survive was her quick thinking at this moment. The Germans are there. Mm-hmm. She goes to the weapon stockpile, and someone comes in. They, sh- she said, they said, uh, you've got to get out of there, Pearl. Germans are right here. So she grabs one thing, and that was the cocoa tin full of the network finances. And so she runs with it uh-huh. into wheat field, and she hides there all day in the hot sun. She says, I was very frightened, very hot in the blazing sun, but she managed to keep the network finances from falling into the hands of the Germans. And so they were able to resupply. They were able to grow larger because after D-Day, all the French uh, resistors just suddenly came out of the woodwork, the ones that hadn't been part of the resistance already, and the network grew substantially. And she had the money, and it lasted for a while until they could reestablish contact with London 
and um, get that, going again. That's amazing because, I mean, I just not, – not that I compare myself to anybody who's brave enough to fight a war, but you would think your first instinct would be to grab a gun or whatever. But what's a gun or a pistol going to do against you know 2,000 Germans who were surrounding and, and zooming in yeah. on you? So, so D-Day comes, and a lot of uh, a lot of people see that the the tide of war is turning. They start volunteering. So suddenly, her group, her network, and a lot of other networks suddenly have more people than they know what to do with. And, exactly. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit? I mean, she, I guess that they just suddenly have more people, and then it, that's not an effective guerrilla unit because you it's supposed to be small, you know, organized bands as opposed to a large force fighting like an army. Sure, and they. They would come, the um, the resistors kind of came out of the woodwork and they really wanted to fight because they knew that the Allies were going to win. Mm-hmm. So they would come to where a, a network that could supply them. They wanted arms. Um, they wanted to be able to really fight. And so Pearl had contact with London, so she had the supplies. So her network grew uh, enormously. It grew into approximately 3,500 men. Wow. That was her little portion of the stationer network suddenly grew so large and she didn't she didn't know what to do exactly right. although she kept her head and that's the thing goes back to her childhood she was able to function in the midst of dysfunction as a very young person and so when these people just started flocking to the network she was able to maintain order and she had this brilliant idea of subdividing her network into four subsections and giving them each their own leader. And then um, she actually asked for a military leader to come in. Even though she was very capable, she really hadn't been trained to be a military leader, so she didn't think uh, she would be the best person to keep that job to the end of the war. So um, after he came, Mm -hmm. she kept all all the subunits supplied and she kept visiting them, so she didn't really leave, but she was really on top of what was going on with them. She didn't lead them into battle, right. as um, she's sort of been, <laughs> legend has it, she led these men into battle. Not <laughs> quite, but she did keep them supplied and armed, and she kept them uh, able to do battle with the Germans. So it was very, very important role, crucial role, in crucial moment in D-Day history and World War II history. Yeah, um, but again, she's just so amazing. So this, these people flocked to her. They have to split it up. And even though she was sent over as a courier for a while, she is a leader of one of these, yeah. I guess, sub-networks. But even then, I just think it's amazing. She has the humility, and um, she can almost distance herself from the situation and go, well, I could do this. I haven't been trained, but I got these natural leadership skills. But no, I'm going to be humble and do what's best for the cause. I'm going to call for a military leader, which eventually comes. But until then, she's in charge of her little section. And that and that wasn't the only time that that um, her, I guess, her gender played a part. Because I just love the part where, um, and this is in a different part of the story, of course. But there's a, a there's a Michelin factory. That are making tires for the Germans, and um, and the RF the uh, the British are saying, look, you either help show them how to sabotage, or you sabotage that factory, or we're going to blow it up. And she, even though she had the training and the skills to show them what to do, they weren't willing to listen, and the factory paid the price for that for that blind arrogance, if you will. Well, yeah, she actually she got sick; she couldn't go, but mm. she realized that the resistance leader in that area was um, 
kind of misogynistic. He didn't like women. Uh, Nancy Wake had a run-in with the same guy in, in another story. But um, so they sent, she sent Henri instead. She couldn't move. She was so sick. And um, they, they ignored him. They didn't know who he was. And you had to be really careful back then. You don't realize sure. how uh, careful you had to be. People were posing as uh, resistors when they were really working with uh, the, um, uh, the Germans. So mm-hmm. it, it's not surprising that they ignored him, but nothing could be arranged. And uh, finally, the um, RAF bombed him. Yeah. Again, it's, it's just unfortunate, but um, I guess that's the way the world was. And so that's, that's yeah. the way it is. Now, um, so I, th- I just think it's interesting, and, and I can't remember verbatim how she puts it, but I love the way she words this. When, um, when the Allies were coming, when the Allies were coming, we were told to stop the Germans going west to the coast. And once the Allies landed, we were ordered not to let them go east back to Germany. So I just, I just, I, but I, I can't remember how, but I just love the way she words that. So their job is to just trip up the Germans at every chance they get. And yeah. she, she does do some things where she blows up some fuel, making it a lot harder for that. But it just must have been very challenging. The, the situation is falling apart politically and militarily, and they're still trying to inflict as many wounds on the aggressors as they can. Yes, exactly. That was or, that was her orders, and that's what she did. Yeah, that's now, what they've been training for all this time. All the organization, all the long train trips, everything had been geared for D-Day, and so then they were they were very effective at that point because she was able to take over that particular part of the network. Right, and I, I loved her, and she was even though she was dispassionate most of the time. There were a couple of um, moments in, in her in, um, in her dialogue, or her discussion, or her memoirs when she kind of bites a little bit. She was talking at one point about uh, eighteen thousand Germans surrendered to one American soldier, and of course they make a big deal about that. But she's like, yeah, but no one talks about all the um, the those eighteen thousand Germans were harassed by Maquis for years up until they surrendered to that to that American. So let's she's like, let's remember who yeah, you know, let's remember the full story here. I just love when yeah. she, she got an attitude. Right. She was very loyal to the men that she was working with and she knew that what they had done and those Germans surrendering was a direct result of the Maquis in her area. So she, she felt, that's her sense of justice again. She felt like the people responsible for that surrender were not getting the credit for it. It was the Americans. And um, because the Americans, they weren't trying to be unkind or unjust. They just yeah. didn't know what was going on. <laughs> yeah. Now, they didn't have the full story. Sure. Now, even though we've talked about all this, her story is not over yet, and it's still not finished, I guess, being dangerous. Um, so de Gaulle comes back. It's up France. And because and, – and there's a whole backstory to this, obviously. But de Gaulle was a very um, strong-willed, individual, individualistic person, and he was thinking about the pride of France. So when he arrives back in France, he tells all the British SOE agents, look, you've got 48 hours to get out of France. Thank you for everything you did. Now get out. So Pearl is – um, a British uh, citizen, but she's also uh, is she is she uh, does she have dual citizenship? She's allowed to to stick around for a while. Yeah, she was a permanent resident, and okay. Henri was a citizen. Um, so yeah, they were going to come back into France. They had to go to the SOE offices to sort of debrief oh, right. and tie up loose ends. But yes, De Gaulle had some issues with the British. He was <laughs> not pulled. Um, yeah, putting it mildly, he. <laughs> He was not told the date of D-Day, 
And his relationship with Churchill was always a bit strained. Right. 48 hours was generous, actually. He didn't give everyone 48 hours, but they had to get out, and he sort of had this attitude that um, France had liberated itself. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. He's an interesting guy. He did did rally the troops in some ways, but um, he did have a problem with his... British allies. Right. Now, there's one part I, I just have to mention, and I apologize for skipping over it, about Pearl and Henri. So so they're together. They, for lack of better uh, terms, they fall in love, and then she has to leave the country. They don't see each other for years. Henri is captured by the Germans. He eventually mm-hmm. escapes. He goes to uh, unoccupied France. Excuse me. They, they're able to come back together. De Gaulle comes. A lot of the agents are le- leave, but then these two, like you said, they have to go back to London to debrief and and uh, and I guess turn over whatever money and everything else that they still have in their possession because the war right. for for them, I guess, is over. So they get to London and they're doing that, and then they have they get there just in time to experience the V two rockets that are raining down on London. So even though they think they're safe, they could be killed at, at any moment. Even though they they think this war is over for them. They could have been, yeah. It was very dangerous in London all through the war. So the SOE agents leave, and then um, she, uh, Pearl and Henri are going to go to London, like you said, to debrief. And um, at the time, when they were over in, in occupied France, so they had spent millions of francs that they were given by London. So they go over there, they debrief, and they return what money they had. And I think, if I remember correctly, they were one of the few networks, if, if I can use that word, to actually return money. So again, her just her, her forthrightness and her honesty and fair dealing just a part of who she was, just was always there, and she was just going to be who she was at, at all times. Exactly. She was very just, and they, they spent what they needed to spend. They did spend almost 6 million francs, but they had to pay thousands of people right. because these some of these men had wives and families. They had to eat. Uh, they needed um, the arms. Well, the arms were brought in by London, but, um, yeah, nobody apparently had returned the accounts, at least when she returned them, they said, we've never seen any, anyone <laughs> return very detailed accounts, exactly what they had spent and why had they, they had spent it. So she was, she was very detailed and very just. That, that's just amazing. So, but even then her story is not over. It's, um, she is, she is, I guess, selected for the MBE, the member of most excellent order of the British empire. And then mm-hmm. she goes on the tour of the United States. But even that, um, she, I guess she found fault with because she was given the was it the non non military or the civilian version of that award? Exactly, because she wasn't technically part of the military, right? So they thought, well, if she's not the military, we'll give her the civilian. But she said, I didn't do anything remotely civil during the war, <laughs> so she she didn't want that award. <laughs> wow, that's so. And I think was it years, maybe even decades? I'm not sure. She met the the queen. And the queen said, uh, you've been waiting a long time to get this. I, I just thought it was really interesting that she just wanted to be treated fairly no matter what. you know. And I just thought that was amazing. Yeah, actually, the queen gave her the CBE, Commander CBE, okay. of the British Empire. Okay. Um, the military MBE, she did get that later. Okay. Um, but she did, a couple years later, she was finally awarded the military MBE with some other SOE women because... She made quite a fuss. It was in some papers, and she was surprised. But that was her sense of justice again, sense of fairness, sense of right and wrong. This just wasn't right. She wasn't <laughs> sitting behind a desk. She was yeah. She was 
in uh, enemy territory. Now, was that when the queen said to her, "You've been, you've waited a long time to get this," or was that for a different no, award? That was the um, commander of the British Empire gotcha. in two thousand four. Okay, and she had waited a long time for that. Now. And we didn't touch on this, and this and this is really my fault. But for years, she did not, I guess, tell her, or share her story, um, because she had seen what a lot of other people were doing. They were doing very dramatic versions of individual stories during the war. And I guess because of the the type of person she was, she didn't want any part of that. And and but later on, I guess in life, she just said, "Hey, my story needs to be told." Or or could you could you uh, share with with us? Sure. Some of that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately after the war, the British public was fascinated and horrified to learn that these young 20-something women had been behind enemy lines during the war. And so a lot of criticism was heaped on the SOE leadership, but also the film industry and the publishing industry got into gear and started creating these fictionalized, sensationalized stories of these beautiful women agents and Pearl saw some of these and read some of these and she didn't recognize some of the people <laughs> that she had known right. and then someone did it to her someone wrote a highly sensationalized book about her um, wrote something very sensationalized and romanticized about her life and she, so she said no more interviews and she refused for decades wow. to tell anyone um, to grant any interviews mm-hmm. until she was getting older and she thought, you know, this connection between my difficult childhood and my successful career as an SOE agent, it might encourage some young people in difficult circumstances if I would come uh, forward and tell my story in its entirety. So uh-huh. then when Hervé Laroque, a French journalist, approached her in the 90s, she, she agreed to a series of interviews that would result in the memoir Pauline, French language memoir okay and then um and then somehow you were tapped for the i guess the the english version of that yeah what happened was um we had to my husband speaks french Mm -hmm. and so uh when i was looking for people to include in women heroes of world war ii i kept coming across her name as someone who was a very impressive agent of the soe during world war ii but i couldn't find anything on her and then finally realized that there was this French language memoir out there. And since my husband can read French, I got a copy from Hervé Laroque. And so what my husband John did, he he translated a a huge synopsis of the book for me. And then I used that to create the chapter. Well, then he started this pen pal friendship with Monsieur Laroque. And turns out the memoir had already been translated into English, but that no one wanted to publish it because it was a Q&A formatted right. memoir. And I asked the Chicago View Press about it because Women Heroes was doing fairly well, and they said, sure, we'll publish it in our Women of Action series. But uh, they said I had to do a lot of editing. They weren't going to publish a Q&A. So I had to edit it into a straight narrative and then add introductory material suitable for uh, young adults, right. and so that's what I did, and the result is Codename Pauline. Yeah, I really, I really enjoy that. I mean, 
I, I'm, I, of course, I don't know what it was like before you started editing it, but I really, you really just get the sense of this woman sitting in a chair and she's just talking about these events, and I just really enjoyed it. Um, I'm not sure what would be for other people would have had, but I have to say that I really enjoyed your um, your little intros to each chapter. It was very tight writing. It, it was, it, and it really gave gave what what I was about to read it really gave it context and then you would just throw in this little personal element and it just really um, added depth and color to what Pauline excuse me Pearl was about to say and I just really enjoyed uh, uh, the intros and I certainly enjoyed the um, the women of heroes of World War II um, well, thanks, yeah no I just, I just really as someone who's tried to write a hundred different you know a hundred episodes of a podcast I just really admired uh, the uh, the the writing style that you that you use. And I, I think I, I think I read on the internet somewhere you're coming out with Women Heroes of World War One. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, June first, that comes out. June first. I'm looking forward to that one. Okay. So, um, is is um, Pearl still alive? Did, did she pass away recently? She passed away in 2008. Oh, okay. Yeah, just just She's an amazing. In her 90s. Yeah. yeah, but but she was when she told her story, she was pretty um, advanced in years. She was in her 80s, right? So she's she born seemed, in 1914. So she was pretty spry. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, she was she was alert till the day she died. She did lose her eyesight in the final years, but right. apparently her brain was all there That's up amazing. until the end. So she was quite a woman. That is absolutely amazing. And and I think you and I were talking before we started the show. Um, I have four daughters, and so I'm always looking for, you know, very um, – pro women are, are, are just role models for my daughters to, to emulate. Um, and when I came across your first, the, the book, you know, women heroes of world war two, I just shared certain passages, you know, at least with the older daughters. But again, I just want to thank you because I'm always trying to find material so they can, you know, take themselves seriously, be, see themselves as equals and just, and just live their lives like, like everybody else does. I loved writing that book. It was very inspiring. Cool. Um, those women were just amazing. And, uh, thoroughly enjoyed writing that book i've enjoyed all of them but um that was my first book and um i found the most inspiring stories that i could and i just loved writing it so i'm so glad you enjoyed it i'm glad you were able to share it with your children yeah that was great and maybe we can have you come back on and we'll talk about some of the uh, the ladies in that book that would be a lot of fun Oh, definitely. I'll send you a copy. Okay. So, so Catherine, I just want to thank you for your time. I'm sure you're busy getting ready for your new book to come out and all the different things you have to do for that. But just thank you very much for the time you shared with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Ray. All right.